All right. Well, we've been talking a lot about some exciting things in the future. We're anticipating, and, and it's good to have some information and understand it, uh, perhaps a little bit better than we did before. Uh, we're going into another section here tonight, or this morning, that uh, you will find uh, very interesting. All right? I'm going to have you in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 19, but I do want to prepare you today. You're going to be all over this book. All right? So be ready to turn pages. Have several bookmarks available. Uh, that might come in handy as well. But Revelation 19 is where we're going to start. I want to read a section of this, starting in verse number 11. And I'm going to actually spill into chapter 20 in the first two verses. All right? So Revelation 19, 11, all the way through chapter 20, verse 2. And I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one can know except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite, strike down the nations, that he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he had a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. You ready for this? Alright, let's ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, Thank you again for your word, and thank you for giving us this information today that we're going to, to try to sift through and understand, Lord. We can't do it without you. Thank you for the very fact that you are conscious of that, and you have given us a helper, our, our blessed Holy Spirit, who guides us through your word, and we depend upon you today. Teach us, we pray. Challenge us with your word and make us different because of what we see and what we learn of you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. The believer's hope. We talk about that. Most of the time, it's, uh, it's just summed up in the idea that we're going to be set free from this world someday. That's our hope, that the Lord should come for us, and, and we know it's to be true. It's not a, I hope so, but it's a confident expectation that that is going to take place. But there is an aspect to that hope that we look forward to especially, and that is to be set free from the struggles of the power and the presence of sin. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to step into glory and not have to deal with that old sin nature anymore? We're not going to know what to do with ourselves for at least first ten minutes, right? Trying to figure out, who is this individual I'm, I'm now because of that change? Paul expressed it so well in Romans chapter 7. I'll just read you the verses because you know them. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. He concludes that with saying, wretched man that I am. Ever try to figure out what the word wretched means? In the Greek it means a ongoing trial. And I thought, my, I think that's a pretty good description Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But you ever feel like you just create an ongoing trial for other people? Ongoing trial for the Lord? That's the word wretched. It says, I'm an ongoing trial. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Then he answers it very quickly. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have that hope, don't we? We're going to be set free from all these things too. And no doubt you look forward to heaven just to be free. Like I do. We look forward to be to free from the burden of this sin nature. Now, I'm going to incorporate that somewhat into my thoughts here this morning. Because we have a lot we look forward to. In our, our study about heaven and the believer up to this point, we've talked through the fact that we're going to depart from this earth. Uh, from either in death, or all of us through the rapture, one way or the other. We will spend seven years in heaven. We call that the tribulation period on this earth. But we will be up in heaven with the Lord. We have the judgment of the believers, the award ceremony taking place. We have the wedding of the church taking place uh, during that time, during those years. At the same time on this earth, there is a tribulation taking place. We've talked through a lot of these things in the last uh, handful of months. Our study has kind of walked us through the book of Revelation. You've noticed that. We've kind of jumped in in chapter 4, and we've worked our way up to chapter 19 now, emphasizing the activities that are going on in heaven. I've done that on purpose. I, I haven't talked much about what's going on on earth. I've tried to keep us thinking up, and we're trying to walk through the events that we're going to know. And my, my ability, I hope, is to set it before you in a chronological order so we can grasp it. After all, we're going to witness these things firsthand. We ought to know. And God told us what they are, so we're working our way through that. And, and last week I left you in chapter 19 at the very early parts of verse number 11 and 12. But 
Christ coming, and verse number 14, um, that we come with Him. That's where we left off. So, this is at the end of the tribulation period. We call it the second coming of Christ. That's the technical term for what we are witnessing here in chapter 19. Now, I'm going to walk you through this very carefully. But remember the key to understanding where we will be and what we are doing the moment we leave this earth. Scripture says, wherever Christ is, that's where we will be, right? That's His promise that He's made to us. And so we're going to hang on to that today and hang on tight because we're in for an adventure. Chapter 19, 11, all the way through chapter 20, verse 2, the passage I just read, gives us details about the second coming of Christ. So some people, it's kind of a fuzzy topic. They're not too sure. They, I mean, they, we acknowledge He's coming. We know that's true, and, and He's coming down to this earth. And we know He's going to uh, come in this manner and things. But uh, if somebody should ask you why... Give us the details. Explain it a little bit further. Uh, sometimes we're a little bit hard-pressed to go through that and explain it. Because, to be honest, when we talk about end-time events, where it gets our biggest attention? Tribulation period. And isn't that kind of funny? That's not for us. And the things that are for us, we don't think too much of them compared to what's happening on this earth. And so... Trying to explain this might be interesting, but uh, this is all part of our eschatology. This is what you and I are going to experience. So we should know. Since we're coming with Christ, uh, let's find out what He's doing. Why He's doing it. And I want to warn you, not only is this vividly described in Scripture, but it is stunning too. Alright, just prepare you. It's very fascinating. Three parts that I'm going to address today. Three parts concerning the second coming of Christ. Uh, the first part is a war. The war of Jesus Christ. The second is the defeat of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And the third is the binding of Satan. All three of those are referenced in that passage I just read to you. The war of Christ. The defeat of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And the binding of Satan. Now, more than likely, if I were to ask you, well, where is Christ coming? When He comes again. After, after all, we just saw Him coming, and the armies are coming with Him on these horses. More times than that, we go over to Acts chapter 1, verse 11. In that little passage, it speaks of where the disciples are with Christ, and they see Him ascend up into heaven. And all of a sudden, as they're staring up into the sky, angels appear, and they say this phrase to Him. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. And we say, okay, there it is. Now, he left the earth from Mount of Olives. We have that. That's simple. That's right from the text in Acts chapter 1. And so it's easy to think then he's coming right back to the Mount of Olives. But if you listen to the verse one more time, this same Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way 
It doesn't say in the same place. It says he will come in the same manner as he got, went up, he's coming down. The place is interesting. And this is what part of our study is today. Because you need to be caught up to speed on this. I do too when I think it through. That the return of Christ with you and me has to do with several places. Not just one. Ready? All right. Now, if you want a really, really handy book on this, you can find it. Uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Just like saying his name. Fruchtenbaum. Um, he's a researcher into these, e- e- these things in Scripture. Very sound in his understanding of Scripture. Uh, head of Ariel Ministry. A-R-I-E-L Ministry. It's a Jewish ministry. Very sound biblically. And he also teaches at Tyndale Seminary as well. And um, he's written a wonderful book that outlines and details uh, the end-time events from a biblical perspective, and his insights are fascinating. The name of it is called Footsteps of the Messiah, and you can find that through Aerial Ministry. I highly recommend the book. It will take you a while to read, though. It's about this thick, all right? But it's worthwhile. It's a good book. Anyway... Somewhat indebted to him this morning as we walk through some of these things. His insights are fascinating. And so, hold your bookmark right here in Revelation 19. You've already got the outline. Starts with the war, and then it moves to the, uh, um, the issue with the Antichrist and the false prophet. Then it moves into the issue of Satan. But hold your bookmark here, and let's fill it in a little bit more, and go back to Zechariah. Old Testament book. Chapter number uh, 14 would be a good place. Zechariah. Now, if you find Matthew, just start backing up a little bit. Zechariah is going to be the next big book you encounter. Uh, There's a couple of little books around there, too. You'll find right after Zechariah, a simple little book uh, called Malachi. All right? Zechariah chapter number 14. Now, if you want to... Understand this book. I'll just give you a tidbit on it. The book of Zechariah is more graphic than any other prophetic book on end times. Most people think Revelation is the big one, or the book of Daniel is the big one, and those are wonderful books to study. Zechariah goes into details that you won't find in either of those books. Fascinating section. In chapters 9 through chapter number 11... He outlines for us the first coming of Christ. In chapter 12 through 14, he outlines the second coming of Christ. Very fascinating information. Some people say you could just hang on to this book and know it all concerning the end time events because of his emphasis on Christ. And uh, as I said, it is exceedingly graphic. Now I'm going to catch you up on this because we can't possibly read all the way through 12, 13, and 14 right now. You can later. But uh, the armies of the world will gather. We're going down to the earth level for a little while, okay? Look down. What's going on on this earth? Um, the armies of the, the world would gather in a valley just north of the territory of Jerusalem. Uh, Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo is up that way. Uh, if you follow it along on a map, it's just north and just slightly to the west. Not much, but in a giant plain there... Um, the armies of the world were gathered. They have one desire, and that is to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. Is that anything new? 
No, but they think they've got it at this point. The armies are being led by the Antichrist himself. Empowered by Satan, actually. Sometime during these events, as we saw in Revelation 19, the focus will shift from those Jews actually to the Lord Jesus Christ will be the one they want to defeat. Their intention will be to fight against him. It's almost as if the Antichrist will raise his fist up into the heavens and taunt the Lord and say, Now, this is an army you can't defeat. In his hatred, he will enter into the land of Israel. He will conquer all but the city of Jerusalem. The idea is that it's all cut off. Jerusalem's all that's left standing. The majority of the Jews are trapped within its walls. A remnant of the Jews have escaped. And they're headed toward a territory we call Petra. Their idea is to hide down there, seek protection. So it's about 100 miles south of Jerusalem, and they're heading down that way. And they make it as far as a town called Basra in Edom. Basra is an interesting location. Basra is one of the capital cities of Edom. Uh, it, was, it was known as a royal city. It's got some protection to it, apparently. Uh, it's very close to the land of, of Petra in that region. And they're heading down that way thinking we can be safe if we get inside those rocks. If you've ever seen the pictures of Petra. Uh, they considered it a fortress you could not conquer. What, what it was was a, a city inside, if you will, the, the walls of a mountain all around it. And the entrance was wide enough for a single horse to get through. The only entrance. And to defend it was easy. Just put somebody up on the top, and you pick off the enemy one by one as they come through the door. They said, you could, you could survive in Petra. So they thought they'd hide down, down that way. So a remnant has escaped, but the rest of the city is cut off. They're, they're in danger right there. A fierce war takes place. And according to Zechariah 12 and 13, for quite a while, it actually looks like the Jews have the upper hand. They are fighting, and they're fighting fierce, because after all, it's their land. We've even seen this touch of this in history on several occasions. 1967, for example. People defending their land. 1945, people defending their land, and boy, they fierce at it. They will be defending their hand, and it would seem that their land, and seem that they have an upper hand here. And Zechariah 12 tells us that the, it actually looks like the Jews are winning at this point. However, in chapter 14, starts in verse number 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The house is plundered. The women ravished. Half the city will be exiled. The rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. The city will fall. That will be their last hope, as far as they're concerned. Humanly speaking, their city will fall. Those who have been inside will either be killed or captured. Their plans are to be exterminated by the enemy there, of course. But they recall that a remnant got away. A remnant's heading down toward Basra. Well, the Antichrist is not content. With just this group in Jerusalem. Remember, he wants to eliminate all of them. 
in this particular battle. And so he holds these captive, and he turns his attention to the armies that have, or to his, he turns his army's attention to those who have fled toward Basra. They said, we're going to go down there. We're going to mop up the rest of them. We're going to be done with this. They head toward Basra. As they approach, the Jews of that place realize they're completely trapped. There's no way out. Humanly speaking, the Antichrist probably senses, finally, finally, in all of history, I've done something no one else has ever done. I've brought the Jews to their doom. They're done. Something changes. Something incredible changes. According to Zechariah chapter 12, the Lord dumps out the Holy Spirit upon his people. The Jews, for the first time, they're going to realize, oh no, we do have a Messiah and we are the ones who put him to death. We are the ones who have ignored him all these years. It's because of our sins that they begin to mourn. They realize that Jesus Christ is the only Savior they can have. And they mourn. And it goes into description there in those earlier chapters that they mourn for two days over their sins. Each one standing with their families and each one by themselves, mourning for two days, crying out to the Lord. And then they utter a phrase that hasn't been said since the day Jesus Christ went into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. For the first time, the Jews will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said that when he stood above Jerusalem that day. He says, I will not return until you say that. And because of the Spirit's work in this day, they're finally going to realize that's who he is. And they will call out to their Lord. Do you think he answers prayers like that? Are you ready? They're just now on the very last sliver of life. And here in Zechariah 14, verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and will fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Perk up now, listen. This is about you. You ready? He comes. We saw him leaving in Revelation, right? Now he's down here. What's he going to do? Well, Let's talk about where he goes first. Hold your bookmark. Here we go again. Isaiah 34. Isaiah chapter 34. Verse number 6. Isaiah 34, 6. Notice the location of his arrival. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goat, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Interesting start, isn't it? What kind of sacrifice does he have down there? What's going on? Well, if you match that with Habakkuk 3.3, it says, God comes from Teman. By the way, that's in the territory of Edom. And the Holy One from Mount Paran, which is also a location in Edom. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. Now you're in Isaiah. Go to chapter 63. 
Isaiah 63, start with verse number 3. Here's the Lord speaking. Isaiah 63, 3. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. By the way, that just simply means he doesn't need help. Okay? He's not looking for you or me to assist him in this task. He could do it himself. I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the people in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on this earth. Say, so, wow, what a picture. Isaiah had a question that led to this comment. The question was in verse 2. He said, why is your apparel red? Your garment's like one who has tread the wine press. What, what have you been doing? You're coated with red, which is blood. What happened? Well, back up to verse number 1 and see what led to all these questions. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of flowing colors from Basra? The one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. What's it say about our Lord? The first glimpse you get of him, he's coming out of Basra. He's already had a war there. Did he win? Oh, yes he did. He's marching in victory. He's leading the group, matter of fact. It sounds rather fierce, I know. But he came to rescue his people, didn't he? He came to rescue his people. And if you add that to Micah, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, it says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnants of Israel. I will put you together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in the midst of the pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breakers shall go before them. They break out, pass through the gate and out by it. So their king goes before them and the Lord is at their head. The whole picture here is that he's heading to Basra first. He's going to save the remnant. He's going to set them free. He's going to go against that army. He's going to fight that battle. And when he comes out of Basra, he's marching ahead of those he has rescued. Got the picture so far? So is the battle over? Not yet. Not yet. Just started. Remember, there's Jews still being held in Jerusalem, right? There's still captives up there too. Apparently, we're going to speculate just a little bit here. The Antichrist, or at least his army, falls back. They realize that they don't have any success there in Basra, so they retreat, if you will. They say, let's go back to where we've had success. Let's go back to our captives. And so they start heading back to Jerusalem. And Scripture defines this in Revelation 14, that the blood will rise to the bridle of the horse in depth, its length will be nearly 200 miles in distance. That's the distance from Basra all the way up to Megiddo. Blood this deep. The Lord marching on. The army's retreating as quick as they can, but they can't compete. 
When we were in Re- Revelation, it said, From his mouth came a sharp sword, so that it, with it he might strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he had his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw that angel standing in the sun, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, To the birds which fly in the mid-heavens, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, the small and the great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. You got a picture so far? Final stages. The Lord arrives at Jerusalem. Zechariah 14. Still there? Got a bookmark? Verse number 4, all of a sudden. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Aha! There it is! Yes! His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from the east to the west by a very large valley. So the half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And you will flee. Who's going to flee? Those trapped in the city, right? They thought they were doomed. All of a sudden there's an opening they've never seen before because the, the Lord just opened it up and split it wide open. And they flee by the valley of my mountains from the valley of the mountains to reach to Azeel. Yes, you will flee as you fled before the earthquake in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah. The Lord, my God, will come. Notice the next phrase. And all the holy ones with him. Where are you? You're there. You're there. You're watching what's going on here. Christ is coming. He goes down to Basra. He releases that group that's under the most immediate danger. He marches up toward Jerusalem, slaughtering the armies as he goes. He reaches Jerusalem, gets on the Mount of Olives. The city and the walls and the mountain itself split, and that remnant escapes. The Lord's there with his mighty ones. His holy ones are with him. The war of Christ. Who will win? He will. You will witness that. You will witness that. You want to want, I'm going to encourage you to try something. You might find this a little challenging at times, but think about it. Next time you open up the newspaper and you see a nation in our, our world rattling their little weapons towards somebody else, battles going on, threats going on, things of that nature, smile. Most people don't smile when they read news like that, do they? They say, oh, this is bad news, this is terrible news, it's got me all upset, it's going to mess up the stock market again. Smile for a change, because you know the end. Alright? It's our Lord who will win. Eventually He'll win. We know it's going to happen. This is a battle He will win. Now, you're saying, okay, but what about the enemies? Well, let's go back to this. Revelation 19, after this battle takes place, Verse number 19 and 20. I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist by the way, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. Now I'll skip down through the description there to the bottom. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. They were seized. How simple that sounds. He's just going to grab them. Just, whoop, grab them with his hand. Clutch them. Throw them into the lake of fire. These two. The Antichrist and the false prophet. If you read that, you'll notice something unusual about that. These are the only two, only two individuals in all who have ever lived or ever who will live, who will not stand before the Lord at Judgment Day. These two don't get that privilege. They are cast alive into the lake of fire, the final and permanent place for those who are unbelievers. They're cast into their alive. And that's where they're going to stay. Their judgment is sealed, and it's permanent. The rest, in verse number 21, were killed. With the sword that comes from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. There's another passage I want you to notice. It's on Isaiah again. I know, you're all over the place. Chapter 14. Chapter 14. Now, typically... Theologically, when we deal with chapter 14, we say this, this really probably says more about Satan than it does about anybody else. Um, at least that's the way we work through the passage, especially in verse number 13, speaking of one who says, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend to the height of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now we say, well, that's exactly what Satan did, right? Way back when, he stood up and said, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he wanted to take over the throne of God. And we understand that to be speaking of him. But when you get down to verse number 16 and all, you start to see something interesting. It's talking about a man who is slain. Satan's not a man. But he does empower a man. That's the Antichrist. And perhaps this is re- referencing him. Let's go through this passage here in verse 16. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you. They will say, Is this the man who, tr- who the- made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness? Overthrew its cities? Who did not allow his prisoners to go home? Well, that sounds like him, doesn't it? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial, because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever." Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. This seems to be suggesting that uh, there is a man who will be punished to a greater degree, or at least in such a fashion, that the rest of the world will look at that and say, Really? That's not normal for a leader to be treated this way. He's going to be trampled by his army. He's going to be slain by a sword. He's going to be left there to die and to and not even be buried. 
Matter of fact, even they will go after his children for fear that they would rise up and start another group like this. Apparently the entire household would be cut off because of this one. The picture, we believe, is that of the Antichrist. When he's grabbed and seized, he will be slain. His body will be left there. You know, much is said and much is feared about the Antichrist. I understand that. Scripture gives us a very frightful description of him. The world has yet to see a tyrant of this nature. We've seen our share of them, haven't we? But make certain of this in your thinking. The Lord is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. No one is higher than He is. This one who will go into the temple and set himself up to be God. This one who will march with his armies of the world against the Lord. In one moment will be seized, just like that. It's a sudden thing. Just grab. You can almost picture him being plucked off a horse, can't you? Seized. Thrown. Who are you going to be with? Sounds good all of a sudden, doesn't it? Especially this point. You're with Christ at this moment. Who are you serving? Jesus Christ at this moment. Can you fathom the mighty hallelujah that's going to rise from the earth the moment this is done? In chapter 19, they started that in heaven. I don't think we who started the song in heaven are going to stop just because we came down to watch a war. I could almost see the believers, like you and I, following behind in horses, keeping the song going. Hallelujah. 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 There goes the enemy. One more. Who's the biggest enemy? Who's the one you can't wait to see gotten rid of? Last part of Revelation we read this morning, chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Now this isn't the end, but it's a start. That's what we want. So let's see what it has to say. Revelation 20, verse 1 and 2. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story soon enough. But I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's much more to it. I only wanted to deal with the second coming of Christ right now, okay? But he will be bound for a thousand years. We're going to finish his story in chapter 20 still. But why do I go through all this this morning? What's all this detail for? Just to pique your curiosity, to excite you a little bit. I want to remember again why the Lord has given us this information. He told us why in his word. We're to keep looking up, right? Colossians 3 says we're to have our, our uh, eyes set on things above. How often do we get frustrated with the things on this earth? Don't we? Very frustrated with what we see. Remember, folks, this is temporary. We're getting the picture of what Christ is going to do. Keep your eyes on Him. Keep serving was the other thing we're told to do in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, 
Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Sometimes we get tired. We serve in ministry. We do a lot. We get tired. It's easy to do. Sometimes we wonder if it's even worth it all. Is there value of continuing? There's never any change. It's always the same. You ever go through that? You ever think that once in a while? Keep serving. This is temporary. But this is a service we could render to our Lord until we be in His presence. Keep clean. Keep clean. That battle for the soul. I read it to you as I started, didn't I? Paul's struggle. Who's going to set me free from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am, he said. What's his answer to it? Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This whole picture I set before you here because we have the end of the story. Scripture says that through him we are more than conquerors. You're going to know that literally, folks. You're going to see that with your own eyes. We will turn around and we'll remember because we know, we've read it in God's Word, but we'll remember who the King is. We'll know who the Lord is and why we give Him glory. Until that day, have faith. Right? Trust Him. This is what He says He's going to do. I find it fascinating. I'm encouraged by it. It's, it's an ugly passage, but it's beautiful to me when I see my Lord, the one who leads it all. He's no different tomorrow than He is right now. Do you trust Him now? Do you trust Him now? That's the encouragement we get from these words. Let's talk to Him. Heavenly Father, we come before you today thanking you for your word. You gave us a description that really is, is incredible. But it's one you have recorded for us that we might see it. Help us to understand it, Lord. But most of all, help us to trust you. For we must trust you. And we must give you the glory. So work in our hearts today, Lord. If there might be some among us who are not uh, close to you at all, you know their lives and they know it too. Draw them close to yourself even now. Remind them of, of whose side they're on. Remind them of the love of the Lord. The fact that you've called us into a relationship with you that's precious. We praise you, Lord, for it. We certainly wouldn't want to be on the enemy's side. And you have made the difference. To you be the honor and the glory and the praise now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.